Welcome to Hanks for the Memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 38, a Da Vinci Code from 2006. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And with us tonight, Mike, we have assembled a team to call the cinematic accomplishments two greatest influences. We've got theology and we've got literature. And we've got our theologian and we've got our book nerd. And both of them together are going to help us tackle what is presumably the greatest movie that's ever been made. I don't know. We'll get into it. With us first, our resident theologian. You know him from, oh boy, our Matrix series, probably most prominently on our things. He also has a new show here on the Cage Club Podcast Network, Hard to Believe. It's John Brooks. Hello, John. Hey, what's going on? Thank you for joining us. Mike was telling me earlier that he has a whole list of questions for you, so I'm sure we'll get into <laughs> what do all these things mean, you know, cryptology and cryptexes and so on and so forth. But also, before we get into that, we have our literary expert, someone who reads more books than most people I know. She's also going to be on the movie that Mike and I fear the most in Hanks of the Memories, The Circle, which Mike thought was about a cult. And I was like, mm, kind of, but it's more like Super Facebook. We'll get into that when we get into that. We have Jess Collins. Hello, Jess. Hey there. Thank you so much for joining us. And like I said, you will both be back for Angels and Demons and Inferno. So who boy, strap in. Oh, the Holy Trinity. (laughs) Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah, so Angels and Demons came out three years later. That's only in three movies. Oh, boy. And then Inferno came out in 2016, which was seven years later, and that's 12 movies later. So we got another one real close back to back, and then way down the line of like, let's go for a third one. Now, I guess in case someone listening was not alive in 2002 to 2005 and has no idea what the Da Vinci Code is about, Mike, please hit us with what might be, depending on how you take it, the most complicated Hank's plot summary we have yet so far. Yeah, Joey, I feel like, you know, all those convoluted plots for crews that you had to do, I'm getting it. I'm getting my payback here. Yeah, this is your Ethan Hunt. This is your mission should you choose to accept it. But I will give it my all. Let's see here. Okay, so Hanks plays Robert Langdon, a predominant symbologist who's a best-selling author. And he is approached by Jean Renaud, who is a French police captain. And he's telling Hanks that his, his very good friend has died. His friend was a curator at the Louvre. He left all these clues for Hanks to try and solve his murder. But Jean Renaud is... Pretty sure it's Hanks. Um, (laughs) But enter Sophie, who is also a French police officer. The adorable Audrey Tato. Yeah, and she was raised by this guy who was murdered. And her and Hanks go off to decipher all these clues about the actual murderer and what's behind it. And at the same time, they're being chased by a albino who's been set loose by a religious zealot played by Alfred Molino, who is part of a secret society wing of the church. So Langdon and... Sophie, go to Langdon's friend, Lee, played by none other than Ian McKellen. And he is like this holy grail person who knows everything about the grail. And he tells them that long ago, Constantine and Jesus and all this (laughs) stuff that I'm sure we're going to get into. We're like 45 minutes into the movie, but keep going. It turns out that Hanks and Sophie were set off on a course together to find the Holy Grail, which is not a cup, but is in fact the remains of Mary Magdalene and the bloodline of Jesus Christ that has gone on to today. And they're off on this mission with all these twists and turns. Jean Renault is after them. It turns out that Alfred Molina has been set off and funded by someone called The Teacher. It turns out that The Teacher is Lee, played by Ian McKellen. I don't buy that. (laughs) Super convoluted stuff goes on. There's a cryptic involved that was made by none other than Da Vinci himself, which leads Hanks and Sophie to an ancient church of all (laughs) denominations, where in which they learn that Sophie herself is the last in the bloodline of Jesus Christ, none other than she is the living grail, but nowhere to be found is Mary Magdalene's body. Although at the very end, Hank seems to have some kind of epiphany and he goes to the Louvre and he's figured out that she is kept secret safe there beneath the Louvre. Man, there's a lot more to get into here. (laughs) I don't even think I did a great job streamlining this, but basically, you know, Hanks is going on sort of an adult version of National Treasure here with way more twists and turns. It's laced with religious imagery and iconography, which makes it seem more confusing and important than I think it actually is. Uh, It's entertaining to me nonetheless. I think we should just start getting into it. It's the adult version of National Treasure where everyone is like a smug, overly confident person who is so assured in everything that they do. Like, yes, before you enter my house, enter these riddles 
Souls 3. He even looks a little like Cage in this with the hair and everything. Yes, yes, he does. Like the, the meme where he has like the bird hair, like that's this, that's the Hank's hair that he's rocking here. Okay, now let's start with the baseline. I have read this book because I was alive in the 2000s. Mike, have you read The Da Vinci Code? No, but I knew basically everything about it because my mom devours these types of books. Like she loves quote-unquote trash novels, I guess. But she also loves like all those uh, Jack Reacher books and everything. So airport literature. Yeah, I was aware of uh, everything going on here. Had you seen the movie before? No, I had not seen the movie. You know, my recollection of the plot there might, you know, reveal that. It's the first time I've seen it. It's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, okay. And Montez, I'm assuming you have read the book and seen the movie. Is that fair to say? Yes, and I've been to a lot of those places in the movie, so I was going on a little journey when I rewatched this. Yeah, your Instagram story yesterday or today was pretty wonderful. It was just like, here's where I was. Yeah, I actually went to Rosalind Chapel, and I took a bunch of illegal photos, so whoever's listening with the government, come for me. Very cool. And John, I'm assuming you've also read the book and may probably seen the movie? Yeah, both. And I've also been to most of the places that it talks about as well, both before and after. I read the book in 2003 or four, whenever it was the zeitgeist, and saw the movie, though there's very little difference between doing those two things, both in terms of time consumption and literary value. I they, they are basically the same endeavor. Except, like, I think it's a worse delivery mechanism visually. It feels like it's it's trying to hit beats that work in book form that don't quite work out in film form. It's really strange you say that, though, Joey, because, like, so much of what it's about is, like, here's this painting, and, like, I'm going to explain to you now. And it, it, you, you think that would just sort of lend itself to film, but uh, it doesn't. I remember that I eventually got, and I don't think I read it again because it was after I'd read it the first time, but there was, like, a, a Da Vinci Code illustrated book where it was, like, all the art and all the paintings and all the sculptures and all the monuments and all the landmarks and everything that he was referencing, they included pictures of. So it was, like, most, it was, it was not, like, you know, a picture book, but it was like the actual book just like filled with pictures. And I think that's a very cool way. Like that's essentially the middle ground that I think this movie is basically trying to be. Before, Mike, I'm sure you have so many questions about so many things. Before we get into that, let's talk about our favorite parts. I'm going to do two off the bat here. Number one, like I did not love this movie. I did not hate this movie. I think this movie is fine. Considering it's two and a half hours long, I think this movie relatively flies by. Like I think there's so much ground to cover. And as you summed up in your plot summary, Mike, I think that it flew by because there's so much going on. And I also do want to say, as kind of as dumb and like as sort of memed and sort of played out as this type of thing has been it still scratches a very primal itch in me that like oh there's mysteries in this world and like let's like even if they're not true like even if they're not remotely true and i'm sure john could talk to that there's something about what's going on here where i'm just like oh this is fascinating like even if this is even remotely true like this is fascinating and i think in those regards this movie is very successful in, in the story that it's telling yeah i love uh secret societies and all that kind of stuff and you know world orders and people you know we've been behind the scenes running the game the whole time and stuff and so i also love uh, that about this movie my favorite part is when it sort of tries to go lord of the rings and back in time when ian mckellen's sort of going into the history of all of it that's actually the movie i would kind of rather be watching to be honest is a period piece of like the knights templar and all that kind of shit but i'm with you joey i'm always up for a good treasure hunt this being your first time seeing this did you like this movie and what do you have a do you have a favorite part i actually did end up liking it i don't think it's a very good movie like i think it's got lots of like wonky problems that even mckellen revealed like just does not make sense to me the first go through but no for the most part like i think it's totally fine i i don't know like i think it could be sort of misunderstood though i i have a feeling you know a lot of people thought this was true i'm sure they read the book and they still thought it was true and stuff so you know it's kind of weird they, they play a little fast and loose with like church doctrine and things like that i'm sure but i always th i think that's fine you know i love things like lost temptation of christ and stuff so anytime you can sort of give some kind of alternate history to to jesus and things like i'm, I'm all for that kind of thing montez what about you do you have favorite parts do you like this movie do you remember liking the book is it a book that you've read more than once where do you fall with it and do you have a favorite part of this movie all right so i've only read a couple of books multiple times and this is not one of them I just have too many books that I need to read. But I remember very vividly reading this book. I wouldn't call it trash. I've, I've read a lot of shitty, shitty books in my life. Mm -hmm. I would call this more of like a very easy read, 
a very nice escape. All the Dan Brown books are this way. All the Robert Langdon books are this way. I think that's why I love them. So I love the book. Um, I even have, you were talking about the illustrated copy. I even have that downstairs on my bookshelf next to my copy of Da Vinci Code, along with all my other Dan Brown novels. And then as far as the movie's concerned, I really liked this movie. I actually, I know we're not two Angels and Demons, but I'm pretty sure I saw this and Angels and Demons in the theater. So I paid full price to go see these movies. Wow, big time. Yeah. And I guess the it's important to point out, important maybe is not the right word, but Angels and Demons came first. It was yeah. the first story and then Da Vinci Code was the sequel. And this is the one that really broke through. And so yeah. when they made the movie, they made this one first. And apparently, I don't know how, because I've not seen that movie yet, but they retrofitted Angels and Demons to be a sequel to this. So like, even yeah. though he's also solving like a murder and a crime in that one, Robert Langdon basically has done none of that before because it actually, in this world, hasn't happened before. And then we've got Inferno way down the line. Do you have a favorite part? Do you like the feel of it? Do you like the mythology of it? Is there like a scene or a character or a moment? Like, what do you love about this movie? Or what do you like about this movie? So my favorite part of the whole movie is at the very end when Sophie is kind of being a smartass and she sticks her foot in the pot. She's like, well, maybe I'll do better with a wine. I think that part's really funny. I just like it for the fact that, like, I wish I could be, a, you know, this pompous, also where the hell does he get all of his money and jet set all around the freaking world from and just go, like, solve these mysteries and just be like, oh, this is just a Saturday for me. I'm just going to go from London to, to Scotland to Paris, you know, no big deal. We love Zurich. Well, like, yeah, yeah can a best-selling author, like, does he sell that much? Like, is the, his books, like... He must make more than Stephen King, you know, to be able to just like have unlimited exactly. resources exactly. and all this stuff, free time. Yeah, I always think it's I think it's really funny, too, in all of the Dan Brown books, as far as Robert Langdon's concerned, there's always a damsel in distress and they always need him with his hockey hair to come and save the day with his ill-fitted suits. And I love it. It's hilarious to me. Yeah. Fair point. I like it all. And John, what about you? Where do you fall on the novel? Where do you fall on the movie? Do you have a favorite part? Is there something about this that you really like? Oh, Jesus. Um... <laughs> No pressure. All right. So Da Vinci Code in particular is incredibly frustrating because what Dan Brown does is takes like, so about one fifth of everything that he says is about one third true. So there's like, there's little nuggets of really interesting stuff here that he seamlessly weaves in with complete bullshit. (laughs) And then you end up with this real misconception about so many things. And so what's really kind of infuriating to me as someone who, as I'm reading, I'm like, uh-huh, no, uh-huh, uh-huh, no, 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 right? I know that it's going out to a popular audience. And so so there's two things that I'm kind of navigating here. One is that, yeah, look, he, he's very good at writing an airport novel. Like, it's that that's totally what it is. It's incredibly gripping. It is literally written like a screenplay. It's as though every chapter is just like a scene in the movie. And that's sort of how it reads. And so there's this sort of like cool old-fashioned Indiana Jones pulp novel element to it that is definitely really endearing. And I and I completely understand, Joey, what you're saying, that there's something about like wanting it to be true, that there's an element of wanting the world to be a mysterious, cool place. Right. And that's really transfixing. What's really infuriating though is that the stuff that he brings up that actually is accurate is really interesting and like it really does deserve to be communicated to a popular audience unfortunately he then goes and says something that is either completely fabricated or based on a total misconception that only further muddies up the popular understanding of something so like one of the instances of that is when he talks about the council of nicaea what he says about the council of nicaea is 100% false like it is not <laughs> it is not at all what the Council of Nicaea did, his explanation of how the Bible came to be is just wrong. It's just not how it was, how it happened. So what I, what I mean, this is why this is a good example, like the Bible, especially the Christian Bible, is not something that, you know, one day arrived on the doorstep from God out of the sky. So like that narrative is wrong right? It is something that involved a lot of human involvement and editing and and discussion and councils. That part of it is right. What he's saying is basically, and it was all decided in this one place and they left out this stuff because they hated women. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what happened, right? And a lot of people now think that it is. like The problem that I had with the Da Vinci Code, because I was working in religion education at the time, was that 
everybody believed it. Everybody believed everything about it was true. And like, this is the issue that I have. It's the same thing as that like history channel thing where it's like next week, will they discover the Holy Grail? Like, no, they won't because if they, <laughs> if they did, it would be on the news and like not on this history channel show that was filmed six months ago. Like, of course they're not going to. It's that sort of thing that just, it just kills me. It makes me like so angry at this, even though I want to be able to appreciate the pulpiness of it. I just, can't do you think dan brown doesn't know better or does he know well enough he's just like it's more fun if i don't do the real thing that's a really good question i i think it's a little bit of both i think he's really good at just sort of taking disparate pieces of information and weaving them together and then when the facts don't jibe with like what he wants to do he just is like ah screw it and so he just makes something up (laughs) so i think it's a combination of like real learned deep dive information combined with ignorance combined with not caring and he's like whatever makes the best story is what i'm gonna do and i have no problem with that like from the from the vantage point of of fiction writing i have no problem with it the problem that i have with especially the da vinci code is that he never really went out of his way to be like this is all bullshit by the way like he basically allowed people to he was very sort of tepid about the way he dispelled any notion that what he was saying was an actual historical fact and the way that he gives sort of a little bit of a nod to Lee Invading, who wrote this ridiculous book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that is one of the real bases of, of the Da Vinci Code, right? It's like that sort of thing that I find kind of irresponsible to just sort of be like, oh, it's entertainment. So, but lots of people really believe this was true. And that and that's, that's a problem. And there was a huge backlash from a lot of places that they wanted to film. And whether that's backlash to the inaccuracy of it all, or like the perceived inaccuracy of it all, or something else altogether, they had all these places in Europe that they wanted to film this, and they're just like, no, sorry, you can't film here. So they had to like go like had like plan B for a whole bunch of different things. Either what's true and blasphemous or what's falsely blasphemous or just whatever. People places are like, no, I don't want any part of it. Are you talking about Opus Day? Is that the one that you're thinking of specifically? There's more than one. Apparently there are a couple different places that like just wanted no part of this movie. And I wonder, like, Montez, as a book reader, in something like this that sort of posits itself, that positions itself as historically accurate and historically interesting and whatever, do you care? as a reader, if this is true or not? like, Would you rather it be true, or do you just want a story? I mean, it's not categorized as historical fiction, so, like... What's actually categorized as? I'm pretty sure it's just fiction. It's not nonfiction, so, I mean, I remember reading this and going, there's no way that any of this is accurate. I remember this taking me so long to read, because I'm like, I think I was only, like, 18 when I read this, so I'm like, there's no fucking way. I wasn't cultured at the time, so I'm, like, literally sitting there Googling everything i'm like okay hold on i'm like let me look up this painting because i didn't have any like visuals and i didn't have anything to look at i'm like there's no way but i'm like this would be (laughs) this would be like really cool if this was like actually a thing but it's not but i think people really enjoy like conspiracy theories and people really latch on to stuff like that and if you like plant the seed which i think dan brown's really good at doing it like will flower and as you continue to read the da vinci code I think that's what it does. It like plants its roots and it's like, okay, you know, this is just a book. You know, you're just reading something, but what if? What if Custer didn't die at Little Bighorn, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> like what if Elvis is still alive out there? You know, like this like trashy like newspaper you can pick up at the grocery store. Like what if, you know, all of this stuff. And I think it just, it does a really good job of keeping your attention that way. Obviously there is in no way, shape or form any of this could be accurate. I think that's the whole point of reading a book like this is you are escaping and it is does completely take you out of reality for the time that you're reading it and then when you come back you're like oh okay well that was really great back to doing what i was doing before so three quick things number one elvis if you are alive boy do we have a podcast number two i did not realize that there were five robert langdon books there's angels and demons da vinci code the lost symbol inferno and origin yes. so who oh boy there's only three movies though and then it is on amazon categorized as religious historical fiction oh shit jesus christ <laughs> number 24 the kindle book the kindle version of this book is number 24 in religious historical fiction books let me actually see if there's any others oh number eight is also da vinci code and number 18 like all different versions yeah it's uh it's all over and the, the place. thing is okay so so the problem that i have with what was just said is is that it is so laden with just tiny hints of things that are 
factual, enough that any sort of random person could Google just a few of the things in the book that are made, the claims that are made, and be like, well, maybe. For example, the Priory of Zion is not something that Dan Brown made up, but it is something that is made up. It is not something that goes back to the freaking Merovingians. It is not something that all of history's great intellectuals were the grand master of. It was a hoax concocted in the 1950s by a guy who was French who wanted basically to reclaim a bunch of land and made up a bullshit story about how he was descended from the Merovingians. So like it didn't come out of Dan Brown's head. It came out of some other place that is also fake. That's the sort of thing that I have a problem with. If I'm going to make a like a contrast it with something, if you look at Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there's a lot of things in that, for instance, that are conjecture and myth and historical religious put it in a blender stuff and then you get like this this story and it's cool and interesting but what indiana jones does is like at no point are you like well maybe there is a holy grail in a cave and some guy's been there guarding it forever and he's eternally young and then nobody's ever gonna think that but the idea that like audrey tato might be the descendant of mary magdalene you're like well maybe because that's not defying the laws of physics right so he does these things where it's like very clearly like the story is so grounded in reality in a weird way that he does make sure that everything in it is at least fundamentally believable. And that is part of the problem. Like, that's part of the problem I have from an ethical standpoint. Do you think it's dangerous? I do, because I've met people who are really taken in by this and really think that this is something worth pursuing and really think that the Catholic Church over the last 1,500 years has been actively trying to cover up the fact that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, that there's a bloodline of Jesus that still exists, and that all we got to do is find it, and that's what the Holy Grail is. And that there's a group of people going around and murdering Absolutely, because it's believable in, in a certain way. Like That's what's so kind of devious about the story, is that he is able to weave together these things that are made up and crazy and bullshit, but like just believable enough to entice people into actually seeking these things out. And people like went on Da Vinci Code trips to Europe to see all these places. <laughs> So they could like discover, like maybe if they knock out the ceiling of, of Roslyn Chapel, they, they can also discover the, the true Holy Grail. And it's just. Yeah, I went to the Alamo looking for Pee Wee Herman's bike, you know, like that. <laughs> I got the same feeling going through this movie too, because it doesn't take that one extra step I felt like it needed to, to like the supernatural level or something and declare itself as, you know, this is fake story, all that kind of thing. Like it leaves you wondering if you too could like go to the Louvre and find the crypt and be Tom Hanks and walk in his shoes and stuff like it just felt like kind of misleading even though I knew this was bullshit or, or at least fiction the movie itself kind of felt like oh like also go on this adventure like it's not all fake it felt like it was leaving on a misleading note I think to what you're saying and to what John's been saying about like it's it's unclear what's true and what's not like one thing that i remember you talking to us john about on i think probably the matrix is like the gnostic gospels and i think at one point in this movie they referenced the book of philip right where they're like oh that was thrown out because like the church didn't like it or whatever is that a gnostic gospel yeah it is yeah and can you just refresh because it's just it's basically i think they explain in the movie it's like the books of the bible that like didn't paint jesus in the best light right and the church was like nope gotta get rid of these at least that's, that's how the movie posits it whether that whether or not that's actually true or not might be something else again it's like 40% true, right? Like, it, so the claim that the movie and slash book makes is that there's all these gospels and the reason they were tossed out is because they didn't, you know, agree with the church's position on Jesus and the Christology and so forth. Okay, that's kind of true, but not really. The reality is, is that in the first couple centuries of Christianity, there were dozens of different Christianities. There were a lot of people interpreting the Jesus story in a lot of very different ways. And those Gospels, I mean, the first Gospel that we know of, the Gospel of Mark, is not written until 70 AD. And even if you go by the traditional Jesus timeline, that's 40 years after Jesus dies, right? So none of these books are, are contemporaneous. They all have an agenda. They all have a theology and a Christology. And a lot of them are very, very different. A couple of them were pretty popular and pretty widespread. But most of them, most of what we call the Gnostics, 
existed gospels weren't. They were limited to very small communities of people, and, and they had a very different views. What happened is that in 190 AD, Irenaeus of Lyon decided basically that there was too much division among Christians, and so they needed to all come together and agree to believe the same thing. And what he suggested essentially was that the four most well-distributed and most read gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, should be the only gospels that Christians read. And pretty much from that point forward, most Christians came together under those gospels, and the Gnostics basically disappeared. They were cast off as heretics, and they stayed afloat for quite a while. But it really wasn't until the end of the fourth century that there was a canonized Christian text, right? So, so it's true the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Philip, the infancy Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus throws a kid off a roof as a young kid and like murders some other kid for fun and then resurrects him and is like, get over it. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, it's rad. But that sort of stuff is like, yeah, you can see why the church was like, yeah, it's not really our interpretation of Jesus, right? And it's not nefarious. It's just that this is like the way that this group of people who ended up winning the day, it's how they interpreted things. So it's that sort of thing where like what Dan Brown implies is that there is some kind of silencing conspiracy, an organized body that was like, nope, you're never going to read these gospels. That's just not true. Like, that's just not what happened. I have all those gospels. They're in a book. I read them often. They did not go away entirely. They did try to eradicate them, but some smart person put them in a jar in a cave somewhere in Egypt, and then they were found a couple centuries later. So we still have them. So like, that's the sort of thing that really is, there's useful information here and he completely screws it up by deliberately like making it fit his plot line that he wants to tell and 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 that makes me mad now is this the kind of thing that could be dispelled if they just had like a title card before or after that was like this like basically you know like based on a true story or based on real events joey look at that did for fargo right like even at the beginning of fargo it doesn't say it's based on a true story it just says this is a real story and and then you had people going out to north dakota looking for treasure in the snow. Right, there's like Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, that like super depressing movie about that woman with like mental illness trying to do that. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. Montez, what about this do you not like? What about either the adaptation or the story or the presentation of this all? What could be better? What could be changed? What is not great in your opinion about the Da Vinci Code? I don't remember who said it, but someone said it, that the movie doesn't do a very good job of, and maybe it was you, Joey, of translating to film so the parts of the movie where you kind of just see hank standing there and he's like looking at like the writing on the wall and like the little like numbers and stuff start jumping out at him and like highlighting i don't like that part i hate that part of this movie (laughs) can't stand it every time it happens i'm like jesus like what the fuck is happening like is this guy like is something wrong with him mentally? Does he need to go get checked out? Like, is he on some acid? Like, what is happening to this guy? I don't like that. That is, like, my least favorite part of this whole movie. The whole aspect of it is just dumb. So, I mean, do you mean, like, at the end, his main moment where he, like, strokes out and sees the universe and, like, <laughs> figures out the balls? Or, like, just his whole deal where it's, like, can I have a picture-perfect memory? Yeah, so, like, every time he's, like, as you put it, he strokes out. And, like, every time he, like is cracking a clue. He's like, oh, hold on. And then just like has a Walter Mitty moment where he's just like off on another planet. Cross, septum, this, womb, Mary, Jesus. Yes, it's this, Da Vinci. Yes, it's A-P-P-L-E. It's an apple. You know what this actually reminds me of, Mike? And I didn't think about it until I was thinking about how best to describe, like there's the slideshow that Magneto does in the middle of this movie, right? Where he's like, look at how this woman is laying. And if you take her and you put her here, she's laying on Jesus and this, and like, it's like, boom, boom, boom. This reminds me of that Keanu Reeves' Journey to Success unauthorized documentary. Whoa. Where it's like, <laughs> then there was 9-11. It's like, look at all these things that Keanu, Keanu Reeves' life has caught. Like, it feels like this whole movie wants to be, look at this slideshow, look at this. Do you think about that? That's pretty crazy. But wait a minute, look at this. Now check this out, but hold on. If you take this and you, you invert it 74 degrees and look at this, it's a vagina, but then it's like this and it's a penis and the more penises you, it's just like, what, what are you saying? That kind of bleeds into part of, I think, like the problem John was bringing up too, where like, even with that Keanu documentary, it's based in real fact, right? But it just twists and turns it to be entertainment. I feel like we maybe have told one or both of you because I don't think we could stop talking about it for like a month after we saw it, but this guy, it's on Keanu's IMDb. I don't know why it's on his IMDb, or maybe it's on his letterbox. I don't know where it came from. But this guy basically made in like 
Windows Live Movie Maker, this documentary about Keanu Reeves' life. It's called Journey to Success. And he put it on Amazon, and we bought it because we're like, we're doing Keanu Club, let's do it. And they talk about all the tragedy that has followed Keanu around, and like, look at what he's able to persevere. And it's like, you know, his girlfriend died, you know, his sister got sick, he was in this motorcycle accident, 9-11. It's like, wait a minute, wait, what? You can't lump this like gigantic thing to like blame it on Keanu. Like it's just that's what are you talking about? And so that's what it feels like that there's like this slideshow where it's like all Ken Burns effect on different pictures where it's like, look at all this tragedy in his life and look at all the things he's caused. It's like the harbinger of doom is following him around. And that's what this feels like at times. And I think that's what it not exactly the same scenes, but it's a similar things where it's like seeing the matrix through the code, right? It's like, oh, I'm able to see I don't have a photographic memory, but I have the memory where I can remember everything I see. It's like, wasn't that the same thing? Right. It made me think of A Beautiful Mind a little bit and how that character was crazy too, right? And so I started just questioning just everything, uh, like Hanks as a narrator, as a character in general. Like, why should I trust anything this guy has to say? He's just a nut. That's that's also a Ron Howard movie, so. Oh yeah, that's right. He cribbed himself. I gotta say, like, one of the things that is, I, I think, really frustrating, so there, there's a couple things where it's like, what Dan Brown is basing the whole, look at the art right look at what if you do this there's an m or whatever none of the stuff that he points out is is even remotely true i maybe 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 like the fibonacci sequence and and all that kind of yeah okay right so yeah so that actually is a part of of renaissance art right and and one of the things that is really kind of cool and interesting about renaissance art is the way that renaissance artists really did troll people da vinci did it michelangelo did it all their patronage was the church and was people involved in the church and all of their art was commissioned by the church or by Catholic families, the Medicis, whatever. And so most of what they created was sacred art, but almost none of those guys were really what we would traditionally call like devout Catholics or Christians, right? And I think the Da Vinci Code actually does talk a little bit about that when it comes to Leonardo da Vinci himself, that he really wasn't like all in with the church and certainly neither was Michelangelo. So there's tons of really great examples of when Renaissance artists were genuinely like internet trolls. And it's hilarious and great. And But what this does is just like takes that idea and then applies all sorts of nonsense to it. And you miss the beauty of like when Da Vinci was really trolling people or when, when you know, anybody else. So here's, here's a really good example. You guys know the creation of Adam on the Sistine Chapel. Oh, the brain, the brain, right? Yeah, so like the brain thing, right? And that's, that's a great example of Michelangelo trolling people. He was commissioned to do an image of God creating Adam. Instead of doing that, he basically just like slaps Zeus in there as God and then makes God a brain, um, a human brain, because... He basically was a humanist and he basically thought the world was created by like humanism, right? It's by like the human mind is the essence of all reality. And so he slaps that in the middle of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican and gets away with it because nobody gets it because it's like nobody knows what a brain looks like because he's the only one who's robbed a grave and like, <laughs> looked at a human brain, right? And like that sort of stuff's really, really fascinating. And it, like the way that Jesus and John are separated in the Last Supper right? And the V shape that actually has value to it as like a way of understanding art. It's just not what Dan Brown says. It doesn't make an M to indicate that it's Mary. Like that's just bullshit, right? Like, and it's, it's, it's almost too bad that this really popular novel that talks so much about great works of Renaissance art did it in such a way that is just so misleading and mischaracterizing that, you know, it's like a missed opportunity to really educate people on some really interesting topics. And anyway, that's, that's my gripe. So if you had to pick one thing about this movie, and it could be something you've already said or something you've been holding back on, is there one particular offense that you find most grievous about this? General grievous. Like something that you absolutely, like your least favorite part. Not really. There's just a lot of things, again. It's like death by a thousand cuts. It's exactly what it's like. Yeah, there's a lot of like micro details, like like microaggressions that I, that really undermine everything about it for me and make me really angry. One thing, maybe I'll pick something I'll kind of defend it on. It gets a lot of accusations of being anti-Catholic. And I don't think that's really the case because the Catholic church that it presents isn't real. And it really is anti-corruption. And there certainly has been like a lot of that in the Catholic Church historically. So 
I don't think it's an anti-Catholic book. I think Catholics who got all up in arms about it are a little like they're whatever. They're idiots. Yeah, this makes the church seem kind of cooler, if you ask it does. me. Like, or wants you to think like, hey, there's adventure behind the church and stuff. Right, and there's this like clearly corrupt dude who's like undermining the church's work. And like Dan Brown almost sort of, if there was a conspiracy to conceal the bloodline of Jesus, like Dan Brown also sort of gives a little bit of leeway to the church as to like why they would keep doing that that kind of makes sense so i don't find it anti-catholic at all i think that's a nonsense accusation if this were the way the catholic church actually operated then like it wouldn't be anti-catholic it would be like blockbuster journalism right but it's not this is not reality and no i i didn't find it at all to be particularly aggressively anti-catholic the way that maybe some other stuff is you know, in that regard, I will say, and this is not something that I thought about until this very conversation and what you were just talking about, but my least favorite part of this might be the fact that they introduce basically an alternate reality church, but it's not nearly as interesting as like the one in the young pope or the new pope, where it's just like, <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, like Montez knows, like, that's a church I can get down with, where it's just like yeah. nuns listening, like dancing the techno music, like club music, just for no reason. Like there's just like a neon rave at night, and like that's Sign just how they up. do things. And it's great. That might also be more realistic than I'm giving it credit. I don't know, but like it feels like if you're going to create this world in which like things are kind of true but also not true and you're showing how things work but not really, make things more interesting. Like I guess the murder plot is cool, but like they also kind of don't focus on that. And I think part of that is that you're condensing 550 or 600 or whatever page novel into 2 hours and 29 minutes or something. Like there's so much ground to cover that you can't, but like basically if you're going to be blasphemous, be like be cooler about it. It's weird too cuz I almost expected more sort of world cues like world building cues to prove that we're sort of in like an alternate timeline or something you know like maybe you know because we brought him up maybe elvis hadn't died or something you know like if there was just another sort of fantastical uh conceit going on here to you know like at the very end when hanks is by the pyramids he looks up and there's two moons in the sky you're like oh shit no but yeah <laughs> but like kind of <laughs> so mike is there something about this that you know your least favorite part the first time you've seen this movie you've not read the story i mean you basically knew kind of the story but is there something about this that like either from a filmmaking or a storytelling or whatever perspective that you found most offensive least interesting worst part least favorite part of this movie so i have a couple little things but the big thing is definitely the turn with that character lee being teacher or whatever like that is complete story bullshit as far as i'm concerned like there's nothing anywhere set up that it would be him like it doesn't make any sense that i like it would be this guy like his his whole explanation at the end just like i, I don't get any of that really and it and that's what really frustrated me and bothered me the most but i think by that point you know, I was sort of like, I need a big sort of schlocky twist to sort of wrap up this whole movie and, and make it, I guess, worthwhile. And I, it did do that, at least. It did prove itself to be sort of like inferior on that regard, I guess. And I like that about it. But I, I was also, okay, so I was expecting there also to be way more Da Vinci stuff. Like, it's called the Da Vinci Code, and it turns out to be about, you know, uh, the Holy Grail. I don't know. I thought it was going to be way more of like a Hudson Hawk thing happening with like actual Da Vinci stuff go i mean they find some of his inventions i guess they find the cryptic but i was expecting like way more da vinci stuff laced out through throughout this movie and i guess finally i don't get the albino <laughs> like i didn't understand why he was supposed why he had to be an albino like i thought it was kind of a cool idea that alfred molina found this guy that he could sort of sick on people and be like you're doing the lord's work and you know and, he, and he's because he's kind of a badass but like i just didn't get why he was albino except to like truly set him apart visually as an outsider, which made even less sense because the movie did not feel like visuals were its main concern. Because, like we were mentioned earlier, they didn't. They could have spent a lot more time on like the paintings and and the sculptures and the this and the and that. And I feel like they really skip over a lot of the aesthetic that they could have dove into this being a, a moving picture. So the, all those things just you know in one big package. John, is there historical precedent, or is there kind of, some kind of like meaning to his albino traits, or is that like just a hey he looks different? No, I think it's just kind of a visual cue because he wears like a black robe, but is also like all white, and so. So the whole like sort of Christian light versus dark, good versus evil element of it. I gave him a bit of a Grim Reaper look. Like he looked a little like the Reaper, but. I mean, there's clearly like he needs to be a physically mysterious character. And like Dan Brown has a limited vocabulary. So pretty sure that's what it kind of comes down to. Dan Brown's lack of imagination. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. 
Um, it was getting heavy Matrix vibes too because we have the albino guy. Yeah, We're right. With the Meryl Vinji. Um, yeah. Keanu Meryl played Vinji. Constantine, not this Constantine, but you know. It's true. Wow. Yeah. Really pulling the threads together there. Yeah. <laughs> He's penning his own Da Vinci code over there. <laughs> yes. He's doing it exactly right as well. Just like this, this, this. There you go, Blender, and boom. What's frustrating about this movie, and I don't know if it's A, because it's telegraphed, B, because I read the book and it's in my brain somewhere, C, because I'd seen the movie and it's in my brain somewhere, or D, it's just like, yeah, of course, duh. But like the shameless plot twist after plot twist after plot twist where everyone you thought was good is suddenly evil, and then the evil guy is suddenly good. That all felt a little too heavy-handed. A little too heavy. I'm sorry, I have to jump in here, but very heavy-handed. Knowing that Ian McKellen, Magneto, knowing that he's the bad guy, the moment when, before we find that out, and his chauffeur comes in and, like, sticks everybody up, yeah. For the, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. like, what the that's, fuck is this? That's basically like in Fast and Furious 6 where, like, Gina, spoilers, Gina Carano's like, yeah, coming, babe, and you're like, oh my god, she's evil. But then it'd be like, then Hobbs is like, yeah, coming too. It's like, wait, no, you can't, you can't do that. Like, that's too much. Like, that's, it's what, it's a ship, it's a bridge too far. And then he's talking like, I'm the teacher to the albino guy and everything, and then he just goes back and reports to Ian McKellen, who he just kidnapped? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> but I do also wonder if there was anybody who ever watched this movie who did not almost immediately be like, oh yeah, Audrey Tattoo is the, the bloodline. Like, as soon as you realize it's a yeah. woman, you're like, oh yeah, it's her. There's no way it's not her. Like, in everything this movie's doing, it's like, hey, Princess Sophie, get it? Get it? She's the princess? Get it? Get it? It's like, yeah, in retrospect, it feels so obvious that it's like, was anybody surprised by that? It's like, yeah, of course. You know what's so frustrating too, Joey, is like they set up this stuff that like, oh, maybe she was sort of like conditioned throughout her childhood by this guy who was taking care of her. So like you think she's just going to subconsciously know sort of answers to clues and things like how to open the cryptex and stuff. But no, like that never <laughs> comes into play or anything. So like even the cool shit that they're trying to, you know, sort of expose like falls flat and like never works out. Well, in, in fairness, in fairness, Mike, she's not a, a Harvard symbologist, which is definitely, <laughs> definitely a real field. And no, she's not... just in the uh, the cryptology division of the French police yeah. or whatever. <laughs> There's so many fake careers in this movie, too. Like, what the fuck? Just make him an anthropologist. It's not that hard. Or like an art historian. Like, those exist. Yeah, just, just Indy. Just Indiana Jones again. He's just an art historian. That's so much better for his character for this movie. Like, they were stretching for something cool to call him because they didn't want to call him an archaeologist or something. I got this This movie killed my brain. <laughs> we got two more, baby. Yeah, we got better. A few stray things. I want Audrey Tato in Fast and Furious because the way she drives backwards down the one street, I was like, oh, hell yeah, get, get her in that movie. Quicksolver.net, which apparently is just like, it's like Google, but like for clues, like riddles. Like, I don't understand. What, what was that website supposed to be? The flip phone internet access that he got. Like you see, like it's just, it's bringing up Alexander Pope. It's got to be Alexander Pope because like, what else could it be? It's Quicksolver.net. Yeah, I don't remember ever having that kind of internet on my flip phone <laughs> ever whatsoever, but I love, that's some movie magic. And my favorite line in the entire movie is when they're like, basically, at the end of The Rock, where it's like, it's you, you're The Rocket, man. We're like, Sophie, it's you, you're the bloodline. She's just like, qua? Like, perfect. <laughs> Perfection. Best line delivery, just like, what? And then cut to black. Like, end the movie there. That's my favorite line. Any other thoughts, anybody? John, Montez, Mike, any other thoughts about this movie before we do some trivia, play some games, and get out of here so we can go watch Angels and Demons? Montez, any thoughts? No, I'm just excited to watch the rest of them again. Now, from what you remember, how does this movie compare movie-wise? Movie-wise, I feel like this is movie-to-book ratio. I feel like this one is better than Inferno, which sucks because I really love Felicity Jones as an actress. Well, what about Angels and Demons? Angels and Demons, so I've, I've rewatched The Da Vinci Code multiple times. I have zero, really? zero shame in that. Wow, okay. Sometimes I just like to put on movies that I don't have to think about. Yeah, it's brain mush. Which tells you a lot about this movie, which is like, you have to think about this movie, right? It's <laughs> I'm excited to watch Angels and Demons again because I actually don't even remember reading Angels and Demons. I vaguely remember, I think I remember Angels and Demons being a better book than this. I think. But also, that was like 16 or 17 years ago when I read it. I have no idea. Like, I read it after Da Vinci Code. Yeah, same, same. Yeah. So, John, what about you? Any other thoughts about the Da Vinci Code or any other, you know, bracing us or like, you know, softening the blow, like what we have to look forward to? 
I will say that Angels and Demons is a better book and movie and has about 4% more facts in it that are verifiable. So I do like it on on those grounds. There is one more little bit of trivia that I do, I need to get out because, I, again, this is one of those things that I think is really, it plays a significant role in the movie and people need to know why it is the way that it is. So one of the clues about the the true grail and by the way the holy grail is not biblical and was an invention of medieval europe anyways so one of the one of the clues of the grail right is in the last supper scene that jesus is seated next to what you think is john but actually it's mary magdalene and if you look closely you can see that it's clearly a woman right you remember you remember that scene Oh, yeah. yeah. She's got delicate, folded female hands. Okay, so, right. The reason why that that is the case is that, so, so John was supposedly the youngest of the disciples. The young boys were not available to act as models for Renaissance artists, and the closest they could get was women. So they took young women to pose as boys because they could pay them and they could sit there for an extended period of time without, like, getting distracted by something and going somewhere else. So in a lot of cases... That's exactly what's happening. The model for John probably was a woman. That does not make it Mary Magdalene, right? That's like, that's not what's going on there. Dan Brown like brings that up and then explains it and then just like doesn't even address the fact that that's what's really happening and that's why it looks like a girl. So it's that sort of thing that is, is, is just, you know, it's infuriating. But how many wine chalices are on the table? She is the chalice. So here's some trivia. So I think one of the reasons why I think it's, I don't want to call it emotionally affecting because it's not, but I think the reason that gives me those like, ooh, this is exciting is because I think the score is good and Hans Zimmer's score got a Golden Globe nomination. Also, I think who was nominated for a Razzie? Ron Howard was nominated for a Razzie, but lost. Again, the Razzies are dumb, the Razzies are stupid, but like, I knew that there was something there. When Audrey Tateau auditioned, she asked if she could take a picture of Ron Howard and Tom Hanks to prove that she actually had met them, which I think is adorable. According to Jean Renaud, this is insane. I don't understand this one. According to Jean Renaud, Dan Brown wrote the part of Captain Fache with him in mind? Oh, I have no doubt about that whatsoever. I also know for sure that he wrote the role of Langdon with Harrison Ford in mind, and that Harrison Ford was like, no, fuck that, I'm not doing this movie. And then he was like, yeah, Tom Hanks. Like, writing a role for Harrison Ford makes sense, but, like, writing a role specifically for Jean Renaud just seems, like, so specific and particular. I know, that's what, yeah. I love Leon. The only French actor who also plays a police inspector sometimes that Dan Brown has heard of is Jean Renault. I fucking guarantee it. And and you know he's when he's writing that novel, you know that he is like, This is gonna be a movie, and that's why I'm writing it this way, because like it reads like a friggin' screenplay. So no, I have zero doubt that that's true. I'm one hundred percent confident. Just on that note, I think my favorite directorial flourish of this film is all of the French speaking between the cops and like having that being subtitled and stuff. I thought that was pretty cool. You don't get a lot of that in, in major American motion pictures. Ron Howard, so this is not Dan Brown, but Ron Howard's first choice for Robert Langdon was Bill Paxton, RIP. He was interested, but turned it down due to scheduling conflicts. Then Russell Crowe was considered, but ultimately Howard decided on his longtime friend, Tom Hanks. Also considered Ray Fiennes, Hugh Jackman, and George Clooney as well well as Pierce Brosnan. I like the Bill Paxton thing. I think it's great. Yeah, I like Bill Paxton. I think visually I could see around this time maybe Travolta fitting. He looks a little like maybe what this character should look like. It's like Battlefield Earth era. Hanks almost looks like him in Pulp Fiction in this movie a little bit. So then for the Sophie role, Ron Howard apparently always wanted Audrey Tateau, but she was never available. He also thought that she was originally too young to play opposite Tom Hanks, but then eventually she auditioned and got the role. And then like 10 years later, Felicity Jones is off like, all right, whatever. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> also considered for that role were Julie Delpy, who of course from, I know from, I mean, the Before trilogy, which is amazing, and Kate Beckinsale. So just like, hey, yeah, Euro lady, come, come in our movie. I'm also pretty sure that Dan Brown wrote that role for Julie Delpy. I would not at all be shocked because again, like, huh, French girl, roughly in her 30s or whatever, like, oh, that's the only one I know, so I'm going to describe her when I write this book. The role of Silas, who is the Paul Bettany role, I think, right? Christopher Eccleston was considered, so that would have been... Whoa. 
Whoa. Cool. And then the only other thing, which it's interesting and also not at the same time, which also feels apt for this, was that the creator of 24, the show 24, Joel Surnow, thought this would make a great storyline for the third season. He asked his boss, producer Brian Grazer, about acquiring the film rights. Dan Brown had no interest, this says, in having his book adapted to a TV show, and he said no. But then several months later, Sony paid $6 million for the book and hired Brian Grazer as producer. So it's like Brian Grazer was like, hey, cool idea, not a TV show. All right, BRB, I'm going to go make a movie about it. And it happened. So, And I was saying to John before we started recording that this was the reason they made the Da Vinci Code before Angels and Demons is because this is the one with the more name cachet. They did not know if this was going to be a hit, which seems crazy in retrospect, given that it's Ron Howard directing, that it's Tom Hanks acting, that it's based on like the probably the most popular book of the 2000s so far. Everything seems to have lined up to be oh, this is going to be a runaway hit, but they still weren't sure, which is why they did this one before Angels and Demons. And yet, in spite of their indecision, they're like, I don't know, budget of $125 million made worldwide $760 million. Like, this movie cleaned up 217 domestic, 542 international. So, like, yeah, they did all right. This has international legs, for sure. Yeah, this plays worldwide, I bet. So now a very important question. Do we think Tom Cruise could play the role of Robert Langdon? And honestly, I have no idea. Maybe, probably, but like, would we want him to? He looks like Tom, this, like if he did his Magnolia look, it's got the hair, you know, I think he's halfway there. He could pull the look off. Could he play someone? I, of course he could play this egotistical maniac. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah. Two hands tied yeah, behind absolutely. his back. I, I'd actually like to see it very much so. Is there someone else like if he's not Robert Langdon, which I think again, I think this goes back to our he could probably play every or almost every one of Tom Hanks's roles. Is there someone else in this movie that we would like to see him play? The albino? <laughs> yeah, the albino. I still think I think he'd be a good Langdon though. I, I don't know. There's just something I'd believe him more with while he's like in action, I guess. I don't know. There's something off about Hanks. You know, at the end, we get him with his shirt off, and I'm like, ooh, no, like, you know, he's just not like, I feel like they're trying to portray him more as like a Bruce Willis in this movie or something, and it just didn't it just didn't happen can you really see tom cruise slowing down enough to 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 serve as the the chair of the symbology department at harvard university that that, that that's the one thing where i was like well i was thinking like this this langdon guy he's more of like um he, he reminds me of like oh i wrote a book to get famous and meet women and like sign you know cash checks and things and now he's been roped into a worldwide conspiracy and he's sort of like in over his head kind of thing that's not really the way it panned out but that's sort of what i was expecting <laughs> yeah it's true. Montez, what about you? Do you think, where would you put, if you had to put Tom Cruise in this movie, would he be Robert Landon or would he be somewhere else? He would be the corrupt priest. Ooh. Oh. The Alfred Molina role? Yeah. Interesting. I like that too. Okay. So now a very important question. We've changed the way we were this. We've established already that Tom Hanks is America's dad. Is he still America's dad vis-a-vis this movie? Or does he do something in this movie that sets him on the path of being like, ooh, not, not great dad. I feel like, yes. I mean, I don't think it's a no. Well, I think the way that Dan Brown writes him, I mean, his line, right, the Harrison Ford and Harrison Tweed, like that nonsense in the book, which you don't get in the movie, but he literally references Harrison Ford when talking about Langdon in the book. And he sort of writes him as this everyman, upper middle class dad who just gets sucked into a fun international adventure. And like that part of the story is actually kind of cool. But yeah, I still think he's very America's daddy. Yeah. I mean, dad dash Y, not America's daddy, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> All right, time for the Woody's, the Tom Hanks Awards, the best and the worst of what Tom Hanks filmography has to offer. Best film, worst film, again, don't think it's either. A bigger question, though, best of the worst, most fun, bad film. Is this on par, Mike? The only other nominee that we have there right now, and I know this is a treasured movie for you, is this on par with The Bonfire of the Vanities? Wow. That's what I was hoping for. And that's what I was saying earlier, where it never tips it in, into full-on supernatural mode. Like, I'm not, I, I almost needed, like, a ghost to show up at some point. Or then I would have gotten exactly what I wanted, but it's so close. I think it just, it takes itself too seriously. Like, it doesn't know that at times I'm laughing at it. Even though I'm mostly with this movie and I, and I do enjoy it and I think it's fun and cool and, you know, completely uh, farcical and everything like that. But that's part of the charm, I guess. Uh, I, I just don't think that it earns that best of the worst accolade, though, just because, like, I don't think like, it's in on it, you know? 
and I wish it was in the way that I feel like Bonfire of the Vanities definitely was like trolling its audience back in the day. What this means is that we are just kicking the can down the road that Bonfire of the Vanities is going to win that category because there's nothing else that can compete with it in your heart, in your heart, in your mind. Maybe the circle. No, we'll see. no, no, <laughs> not the no. No. Best or worst Hanks role? Not best. No, but it's a great Hanks role. I mean, it 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 fits him pretty nicely. I, yeah. No. All right. So I guess skip that for now. I, I I will say I think like I think Angels and Demons and Inferno are going to be better candidates for a lot of these awards. So okay. Most wasted Hanks performance? No, I don't think so. Best ensemble? No. This is mostly just three people. Like the third person kind of changes, but like it's mostly just three the entire time. Alfred Molina wasted totally. Jean Reno mostly mostly wasted. Yeah. Best fight? He gets his bell rung, but he's not really in a fight. He gets his clock cleaned. <laughs> what year is it? <laughs> best dance scene? No. Best party scene? No. Best Hank's outfit wardrobe? No. Best death? He does not die. He comes back. Best line or best freakout? I don't think so. You are the Da Vinci Code. No, he never says that. <laughs> it's not like it's not like Cage saying we're going to steal the Declaration of Independence. It's like you know we're going to solve the Da Vinci Code, right? Like that's I'm going to kidnap the President of the United States. Can right? I just like, say how much more I would like both the book and the movie if at some point <laughs> Langdon was like, "It's time to solve the Da Vinci Code," and then he turns to the camera and winks and gives a thumbs it up. It would literally just change my opinion about both of those things 100, like 180. <laughs> I mean the. Final Final line should have been, and that was what we called the Da Vinci Code. (laughs) (laughs) Best soundtrack theme score, again, I think it's really good, but I'm not going to remember it. I think we can skip it there. I will say that, like, let's just, just on the Hans Zimmer kick for a second. Hans Zimmer is really, really good at telling you you're excited about something. And like, it really works here. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm into it. Right. He's He's a master of, you will be excited now and doing it with a lot of timpani. Yeah. Best or worst Hank's love story. No, they don't offer it as a love story, do they? But it's like, it's so in the back of the, I mean, maybe I'm also conflating this with the book. I don't know, Montez, you can, you can tell me what you think about this, but like, it's one of the other things that Dan Brown just like won't commit to, but like very clearly there's a flirty romance, gross thing going on here. Do you think that Dan Brown has like a cute French research assistant that he's in love with that he <laughs> basically modeled Sophie after? And it's just like, and he's modeling himself after Robert Langdon after himself. He's got a different assistant for every book then. Audrey Tattoo is only in this one? Yes. Oh, bummer. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I would say the sexual tension is more so in the book than in the movie. I didn't. I wasn't picking up on any of that. I, I didn't get the yeah. sense that either of them had time or like concern to get romantic. Well, Mike, he's in love with numbers. Maybe that's the best love story. It's Robert Langdon and numbers. It's like <laughs> if James Bond was a virgin. Like it's it's kind of like that sort of thing. It's like there's a new girl in every movie, and it's like really not sexual, but like kind of it should be, and maybe a little bit. And like it's super weird. He's the least cool cool guy in a movie ever. There was a moment where I thought I wasn't even sure his character was uh, was straight because I thought it was almost going to be revealed <laughs> that him and Lee had something going on, to be quite honest, because they were definitely like exchanging smirks and grins. And so I don't know. I do feel like Dan Brown is working out a lot of shit with these movies and the, these books. There's some stuff he's dealing with, like the fact that he always wanted Julie Delpy to be his assistant. And then best non-Hanks actor, male or female. I think Audrey Tateau is good, but I don't know that she stands toe-to-toe with like Meg Ryan or Lori Petty or Daryl Hannah or I don't know. Well, she's mostly just kind of there because Dan Brown can't write women. And yeah. that's and that's true of the other women in the other stories as well, with a couple of minor exceptions. I think she's basically wasted in this movie, to be honest. Okay. I mean, I love her and she can be in anything she wants and I'm more the merrier, but it doesn't really need to be her. This may be just me and, and another this might not be the most sensitive thing to say, but like I, I was actually having kind of trouble understanding some of her lines. And like, I think she's really good in most of this movie, but this might, you know, might not be the breakout role designed for her as an actress specifically. I, I could be wrong about that, but just personally, I was sort of like, I, I like her. I just don't know if like this is the role for her. I mean, just watch Amelie or watch Mood Indigo, like watch another movie that she's like amazing in, right? So aren't those all foreign films, like foreign language yes. movies and stuff? So it's kind of weird. There's like this there's this thing with like French actresses where they're allowed to be like in one big American movie. And then if they're not the reason why the movie did well, they're just gone and they're just doing French movies. Like the same thing happened to like Sophie Marceau after Braveheart, right? She's like in this one super high profile movie, and then everything she did afterwards, she like never made an English language movie again. And they were all just French. And like 
Audrey Tattoo was the same thing. Amelie was a big international hit, and then she was cast in this, and it's like, okay, cool, now she's going to be in American movies, and nope, she just goes back to doing French. Well, it's just like how Isabelle Huppert was in the American smash hit Greta, and uh, now she can never be in another movie again. <laughs> Mike, also today on the network, the other Tom Tom episode, now that both shows are weekly, we have Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, Jack Reacher 2. So very cool. Similar movie, I guess. Not exactly, but another action romp. A guy with like a nearly perfect memory teaming up with a woman to go solve a mystery. Going back to your Jordan Belfort selling me a pen, like you can't sell Robert Langdon a pen either because he's like, unless it's like a, a pen with historical significance. But next week, Mike, on Hanks in the Memories, we have Charlie Wilson's War, which was covered on PS I Love Hoffman. So if you want even more Charlie Wilson's War, go listen to that episode first. And then over on Cruise Club next week, we've got your boy, the Dark Universe, your boy, the Mummy. Oh, yeah. Next week on Cruise Club. Also next week, Tom Hanks did get a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor for Charlie Wilson's War. So if you are following along and you're not sure if you should watch the movie or not, I have not seen that yet, but it seems like a good one to watch ahead of time. So... Cool. Well, John and Montez, thank you both so much for joining us here. You'll be back in three weeks, three episodes for Angels and Demons. But John, first, if you want to tell people about Hard to Believe, your new podcast, and where people can find you online. Hard to Believe, we just published our third episode. We publish episodes every other Wednesday. It covers issues about philosophy, pop culture, religion, etc. You can find uh, us on the Cage Club website, or you can look us up on Facebook, the Facebook address is hard to believe podcast, all one word. And by the time this episode comes out, I think it will be four episodes of yours out and then the fifth one coming out shortly. So very cool. Yeah. And Montez, thank you for joining as well. Is there anywhere that you want people to find you online? I got this website, Unicorn Musings. I write whether or not you should just watch a movie because it's fun or not. I don't get into all of this other stuff that we're talking about right now. I basically just say, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I cried. Yeah, I didn't cry. No, it's not fun. Go watch it. Don't watch it. Wait, have you written a five-star review for this movie? I haven't, because I try to write them as I've seen the movie. I try to write them on newer movies. I also review every book that I read, which, as you already mentioned, is a lot of books. All right. Well, go check out Unicorn Musings. Check out Hard to Believe. Check out all 27 shows on the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things, thanks for the memories. You can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Come back next week for Charlie Wilson's War. Check out Cruise Club Weekly Now today. Jack Reacher never go back. Next week, The Mummy. You know, just send us an email, say hi. Cruise Club is just about wrapping up. We got another five months, I think, of Hanks from the Memories. Got a lot more Hanks movies than Cruise movies. So just stick around and uh, just let us know what you're listening to. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was John Brooks and Jess Collins. And we'll see you next time right here on Hanks for the Memories. This is the original icon for male. It's a rudimentary phallus.